bitches and welcome to wellness for real it's your girl my lady and on today's episode felicia and i chat with daniela all about decolonizing your mind i realize some of you might not really understand what that means we really tried to keep this episode educational and really what daniela does is she is a life coach to help people who are interested in decolonization. Um, She just helps them engage confidently in their social work. So we're all trying to grow and learn and be better. And part of that is sitting in uncomfortable conversations and actually learning so we can be better, right? Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you want to know more about Daniela, all of her information will be in the description of this episode. So let's get it started. It's about to get real, y'all. My name is Daniela Guerrero-Rodriguez. My pronouns are she, they, and I am a queer Latinx femme living on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people in what is so-called Vancouver, BC. Um, I have worked in mental health for almost 20 years now and recently um, been doing more decolonization education work centered on dealing with the trauma that colonization has caused a lot of us resulting in our mental health being off. (laughs) So that is what I do. I also do lifestyle coaching because not only is it education and learning these things, sitting with them, but it's that process of integrating these new things that we have now discovered. We perpetrate as participants in a society that doesn't serve us as marginalized people. So that's a mouthful, maybe that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. And I love the identifiers. That's something that I'm actually currently working on figuring out my identifiers. So you said you talked about decolonization. I feel like, like, what does that mean? Like, what is that? What is a good definition for that? I figured we were getting here. So I didn't go into it. (laughs) But um, So there is a history with this word. I use it because it is accessible. You understand I'm talking about colonization and we mostly understand colonization to be the dominion of people and land by another group. Um, But the word itself has history in the decolonizing of countries in Africa, for example, that um, where the European powers that were there pulled out, usually after a big war, like after World War II, people pulled out and stuff like that. So that has an academic um, tie to it. Mine is we live in a society as North Americans, and my perspective is from the Americas being um, Latinx and living in North America. So what does the legacy of colonization look like here from as soon as Christopher Columbus set foot here? So that is um, kind of what I address. What culture did he create and how did we continue to grow it and where are we now and how can we unprogram ourselves from it? Definitely. And I love definitions. So I have some here that I would love to just kind of define for people because I feel like there's, uh, we talked about this beforehand, this is kind of becoming like a trendy popular thing to talk about, but it's important for us to have the education, right? Um, So something that I see a lot of people mix up is race, um, ethnicity, and nationality. So do you kind of want to explain the difference between those three things? Absolutely. So let's start with nationality. It has to do with what nation you're a part of, what country. I said, um, I'm Canadian. I live in Canada. It is a colonial identifier. 
Um, I can use ethnicity, which what culture am I from? I use Latinx um, because that is the culture, the group, everything. You understand what I'm saying when I say I'm, um, I'm of that group. It's a collective identity. Um, and then race. So race was created in 1683. Well, first documented in 1683 by Francois Bernier, who was a French um, physician and traveler, just kind of like intellectual, which was the thing during the Enlightenment period. You need to know a little bit about everything. And he decided that people were now, um, that they could be categorized based on phenotype, which is physical appearance. Skin color is the one that stuck um, the most out of that. Cause he could have done blue eyes, you know, like we could have had <laughs> being like blue eyes, <laughs> you know, there's create a whole history around that. So, um, 1683, he wrote an essay describing how people were now different. Prior to that, people were identified as perhaps being of different skin color based on where they lived or their exposure to the sun, you know, normal, real things. Um, now we're working off this guy. It's um, fed into uh, religious racism, which um, said, you know, who has the capacity of being saved? Who has the capacity, you know, according to the, the Catholics um, who were doing colonization at the time <laughs> and all that stuff. So what does that look like? And then it seeped into science. Okay, so now we have scientific racism and we see that one very prevalently even today in how we treat people of different skin colors um, in the medical field. So there's, and biological science is another, um, another word for that. But there's, um, there's different ways that we've created this social construct and continue to build and build on it because a lot of people ran with this idea and we are where we are today. This original guy that wrote it, Francois Bernier, he died like three years later. And this was an observation of his that caught on, not the original intent. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's a big part of what you do is really educating people on the historical um, context of everything that we're experiencing now, which is just so important. So I know you talked about identity a little bit just to have some more definitions, right? So what does that mean? Like you, you list off these identifiers. Um, how did you discover what those were for you? Um, yeah, so for me, it was a lot of play. And that was just, um, I got lucky with that, that that was my approach living in a, I talk about growing up in a community um, where everybody was brown. <laughs> I grew up in a low income community. And so you have a lot of minorities and we had folks from Fiji and Sri Lanka and India and Africa and local First Nations groups. So white was definitely, definitely the minority there. And I also went to, um, all of my schools were also um, full of minorities. So everybody was brown of some sort from all over the world um, because it's tons of immigrants in my area. But um, that was never a challenge for me specifically, but I did struggle with the traditions within my culture that no longer suited me. Like being a female in Latinx culture, being the oldest of nine children, there was a lot of stuff put on me that I was like, I don't see anybody else doing this. What is going on? <laughs> you know, what is quote unquote normal was how I would have described it at the time. And now I'm like, now nah, what's appropriate, you know? Um, so exploring that playfully and then exploring and always being a curious kid. Like at my grade 12 graduation, people are like, what do you want to be in life? And I'm like, I want to experience everything and learn about everything. So I've always kind of been that nerd. Yeah. <laughs> so it was easy to go from there. Okay. This is my, um, 
this is my identity within this culture because of traditions, then what is my, um, what else has this affected? My, um, my identity as far as gender, has that been shaped by this? I haven't been able to explore that before because that option was not available to me to play with, just like kids play with um, dolls or cars. Um, gender identity is something else that you can play with. And so I was lucky enough to be in circles where people asked for my pronouns and I'm like, shucks, let me try this other one out and see how it feels for me. And I'm like, this one feels really good. And this identifies more with um, how I behave in the everyday. So playing with that and then um, it's, so it's been a journey and eventually I got to my decolonization journey and just seeing how all of this had been affected by a colonial mindset and being okay, how do I start decolonizing and realizing that race, this brownness that I had never played with before was informed by some French guy, you know, 500 years ago, whatever. So what else can I use to identify myself? And I was like, oh, ancestry. That is where I start to decolonize by learning what traditions I have in my ancestry and what traumas I've inherited in my ancestry so that I can start healing now. Because when I found out I was half white, I was like, what? I don't know any white people in my history. <laughs> so this is a legacy that I carry. How can I start to process, you know, my European legacy within my body, as well as my indigenous, as well as my um, African. And I don't say black because I've never been exposed to that culture. I haven't lived um, as uh, the experiences that a black person has had, for example, it's always been brownness to me. So that's kind of been my journey and it will keep on evolving. And I, when I talk to folks about it, I'm like, find what's the easiest or most important or what you're most passionate about and start there and go on your rabbit trail and be okay with a rabbit trail because it's you and it might change because just like we have identities that are fluid um, as far as gender, that's one we're more familiar with. There's all these other ones that change and even ancestry. I took a test because I didn't know um, and even those numbers change and that's science, you know, there's a lot of issues with that. <laughs> so as far as identities, <laughs> that's kind of where I'm coming from. Recently, I was watching you on Instagram and I, since I've discovered your page, actually discovered your page through another friend of mine, Janelle, what's up, Janelle? I'm like learning so much and I'm finding so many other people to learn from. Um, so if you're not following Danielle, I highly suggest you go check out her page. Um, but recently you were talking about why diversity is not the goal. And it was like this huge light bulb moment for me. When I talk about ancestry, I don't just talk about my biological ancestry. I also see myself as being part of a collective that has brought me to where I am now, you know? And a lot of that has been um, black women writings who have affected me. And we only know what we know as we grow. You know what I mean? I wouldn't have known these things 50 years ago, much less applied them, you know, and now I'm able to be like, okay, these steps were taken for a certain goal, um, which was bringing marginalized voices into society, but we hadn't been thinking of what society we were in, perhaps. So there's a lot of folks that talk about, um, I have talked about this before. I'm thinking of the Kambahi River Collective and how they identified themselves. I forget the exact words they used, but I think it was third world women's group or something like that. So it was part of a larger experience, um, but it didn't catch on obviously until now, like you said, it's trending. So what group are we a part of? Well, it is a society shaped by colonization, which is held up by capitalism on one side and white supremacy, human supremacy and male supremacy on the other. And they feed into each other in this cycle of trauma. <laughs> so how does that, um, how does that, how does my engagement here look like and what steps can I take? So 
diversity, equity, and inclusion are great. They are what I see as perhaps baby steps um, into creating more power within this society to have more voices, to have more freedom to explore our ways of thinking, but they are not the goal. The goal is a life where we are liberated. The same thing with liberation. Liberation is a journey. It's an action, something we're doing. It's not the place we're going. So what, how can we get here? We don't know. Like, that's why I think for me, my biggest, um, my biggest guiding principle or whatever in my work and in my life has always been kids. I've always worked with kids and it's like, I am doing this and perhaps doing it wrong, but I'm doing it because other people will be able to build on this. I've processed some of this stuff that they can then build on rather than trying to hit it perfectly because we're not going to do this journey perfectly if we've never seen it done before or done it ourselves before. And again, that's why I think of it as a practice. It's something that every day we have to start, keep on unlearning and integrating that knowledge into our bodies so it becomes automatic, um, which is difficult in a society that keeps on telling us that we're doing it wrong because it is wrong. This is, they don't benefit from us having our own voice. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's what I mean by diversity. It's not the goal. It might be a stepping stone and some people might completely disagree with it and other people might be a hundred percent for it. But again, we're all on this journey. We're all entitled to our opinions. And as long as we keep on building on each other rather than attacking each other for having different approaches to an uncharted path. That's kind of my, my thing on that. It's a great way to, to, to put it. <laughs> Yeah. So how would you do it when you say a daily practice? How would someone who's never done anything that wants to maybe approach some of this? What are some suggestions? Yeah. So let's take um, yoga, for example, because I think when we say practice, we think of yoga or perhaps basketball practice or something. You go into a space every day with the goal of improving. You might not know what that goal is. Sure, it might be to hit 100 free throws, you know, with no misses or something, but there will always be a goal after that, right? So maybe I suck at dribbling. I can do the free throws, but I can't dribble. <laughs> so it will always be something that you will need to keep on building on. So seeing it as, uh, as different steps that I'm taking by going into the space consistently, that's the big one, is going into the space consistently and seeing what works. What works for me, because I might have learned this thing or seen this thing done, but it's not work. It doesn't resonate with my body. It doesn't work, you know, with my emotional capacity to handle this new knowledge and implement it at this moment. Then having people around you, you know, you have coaches, you're reading books, you're watching shows or not shows, um, whatever sports. <laughs> On TV, you know, having models around you of how to do this better and having that constant feedback of what it looks to do that better and knowing that it's an ongoing process. So with decolonization, I would say do your education, you know, read consistently, read or podcast or watch movies or whatever it is where you can get exposed YouTube to these kinds of ideas and then be like, okay, what am I most passionate about? Kind of like I said, with my identities, that was really easy for me. And I think for a lot of people that are on this journey, it's, you know, how do I fit into this world? It's that sense of belonging or not belonging um well first identify who am i and then look for that group because if we're defining ourselves like a lot of us do by race for example um there's a lot of issues with that because it was there's so much mixing it's not well defined you know you can be in a culture that calls itself um a certain thing for example but then your skin color doesn't line up with it and then there's other issues that go along there so what is your true identity? What, how do you 
experience this, who are you? Understanding who you are and then how your experiences are informed by the way society is shaped. And then how do you wanna navigate this based on this information? So perhaps for me at this moment, it's most comfortable to just be like, like right now for me, for example, I say Latinx. It is a colonial term, I don't like it, but I use it because I have no ties to my European, African or indigenous ancestry. I'm trying, but there's no way I can claim to know this and teach this if it's not something I've ever engaged with. Like, I don't even know who these communities are. And to just say, you know, all Africans are the same. And so this is the culture that I've taken from that is also incredibly damaging to the knowledge keepers that have been there for centuries, you know, paying with their lives for their communities to have this knowledge now. So for me to go in there and be like, it's all the same is incredibly disrespectful and perpetuates erasure. So understanding all these little things, which can seem really massive <laughs> and seeing, you know, how, how do I just fit in? How do, what can I learn about myself and who I am and be open to making mistakes? Cause again, basketball practice, I'm not going to like, you know, peace out. If I missed a shot, I know that this is an ongoing process. Um, and that I will gain more experience and expertise as I just progress with it. So I think that would be the biggest one is just being consistent and understanding it's messy. And again, perhaps approaching it with play, if that's an accessible term to you um, and making it sustainable. This is, this is fun. This is something new and it's okay. So that would be, I think the biggest thing is just be easy on yourself. Yeah. Just like any, any aspect where we, want, where we want to better ourselves, right? It's always an ongoing journey. Um, you do have an amazing list of um, podcasts, movies, and books on your website. So definitely go check that out. And I love that you have your books listed by author and not just book titles because many authors have many different books. Um, and a lot of the times you need to read them in order <laughs> to fully understand, like <laughs> right now I see everyone reading how to be anti-racist, which is amazing. But if you haven't read stamped first, you don't have the historical context that goes, uh, with that book. So I appreciate you creating those lists. So definitely go check those out. Um, if you want to learn some more, um, now speaking of anti-racism, that's another great term that we can define and kind of give people a better understanding, um, of what that means. Yeah. So being anti-racist is to be actively dismantling the, um, social construct of race. So again, learning history is really informative because I can say that and you're like, man, but what is race again? You know, so Francois Bernier, he was one guy. Um, and then looking at uh, the Bacon Rebellion, which happened in the late 1700s, I believe. So this guy, well, there was a whole bunch of farmers, free and um, enslaved and indentured black and white farmers. They, and planters, and planters were a little bit higher up um, than the farmers, but regardless, they were all in one group. And they were like, dude, we need more land. You know, we need to stretch ourselves out because we, we need to produce more. And the guy that was in charge, Berkeley, he was the governor at the time and considered part of the elite. He was like, nah, you know, I'm trying to keep the peace. You guys, you can't be going after the Native Americans. Like we're, we're done with this war and fighting. Be okay with your land. And this guy, Nathaniel Bacon, who was um, a planter, he said, no, we're going to get more land. And he got all of the folks together to come after um, Berkeley. The whole rebellion was unsuccessful, but 
it demonstrates how the elite at the time decided how can we break this up and prevent this from happening again and he went or they went the route of um let's separate these guys by race and if in some way we end up um reducing the opportunities available to black folks um the white folks will feel like they are in a position of superiority even though we haven't given them anything additionally <laughs> they just have the same opportunities and other people have less. So it started with um, anti-miscegenation laws, um, which is the term they use, but it just means no intermarriage of um, black and white folks. And it went on for about 50 years, just additional laws and additional laws and additional laws that then resulted in indentured slavery for all African-Americans. Um, so by keeping them separate, they created this mindset that developed into white supremacy. So racism is the holding down of people of marginalized races, races, skin colors, um, and the upholding of the white um, idea of white supremacy, white elite, white is best, all of this stuff. So I think it's looking at the whole thing because white supremacy has a whole bunch of other stuff that hold it up, um, like the gender binary and um, education, the way that, you know, the West perceives education to happen versus the way other folks around the world perceive education to happen. So it's understanding race is one, or racism is one aspect of white supremacy, and that white supremacy is part of this larger colonial way of thinking. Again, that comes with all the education, right? And, and uh, we talk about how important discomfort is in learning, right? And I think that that's why a lot of people like to avoid these topics because it makes them uncomfortable because we have to then um, really realize where we're coming from and why we want to know these things. So um, I love all of the education or the unlearning um, that you provide. It really helps people out. Um, now, you also talked about um, whose who's land, right? Whose land are we living on? Um, and uh, I see this number kind of floating around. You can text message. Uh, the phone number is 907-312-5085 if you want to know whose land you are occupying. Um, and then learn more. So once you know, what would you say would be the next step in um, honoring whose land you're on? Yeah, I would add to that because I'm not aware of this number and I'm definitely oh. going to check it out, <laughs> is um, our native land map because it covers, I don't know if that only covers the states, but this other one covers worldwide. So it's self-identified First Nations groups going or individuals going into the thing and saying, hey, my grandpa was in this land. So it might not have been traditional territory, but it might've been seasonal territory. And so there would have been um, marriages or perhaps relationships with these other communities that might've evolved into other things. So I would also suggest that one, but with um, knowing whose land you're on, um, I think first is acknowledging that you are on what might be stolen land or on treaty land. And again, with this whole idea of white supremacy and putting education um, as something that Western education is being superior, there was a lot of treaties that were written in English given to people that didn't speak English to sign and then being like, this is the treaty, you signed it, this is our land. There might be treaties, find out how that treaty was pulled off. <laughs> um, but also finding out whose land you're on, acknowledging that so processing that within your body i live on stolen land i am a settler perpetuating colonialism by living on this land what are my responsibilities now that i understand it versus perhaps being a person who is a guest on this land that came here um, through traditional channels perhaps through intermarriage with the local community 
So that relationship will look different um, as will the relationship between African-Americans or black people that were brought here um, without their consent and how they will engage with that. So there's still research being done there. I haven't seen a lot of information on that one, but it was not a consensual settlership, if I can use that word. So how might this relationship then pan out um, versus an indigenous person to this land? So it's understanding all of this because again, there's a lot of folks that are indigenous, they know this is their land, but perhaps have no ties to the land. Um, so what is an appropriate step knowing who I am to moving forward the land? So as a settler for me, it's understanding whose land it's on and what um, traditions this land holds for them, what medicines are around. So for example, um, cedar or sage being, you know, stuff that's important. Okay, I'm not gonna go pick at this stuff, you know, when it's held sacred by other groups. Um, and also what, um, what are they asking for us to do? So here the pipelines are a huge thing. Well, if you're calling on me, it's the least I can do as a call and a person that perpetuates colonialism on this land to show up when you ask me to show up. You ask for money, you ask for bodies to show up to the protest to defend the um, indigenous land defenders that are there, put ourselves between the cops and them, that kind of stuff. So following the local groups um, on Instagram is usually where a lot of stuff is shared or signal um, and any of the cultural events that are public. Because again, living um, on reserve, at least here, which I've lived on part-time for a while, there are a lot of folks that come in because there's a lot of tr cool traditional stuff there, but this isn't your space. You know what I mean? So knowing where the space is available to you and what spaces are not and being okay with that because as people who have, we're super well versed in colonialism, like we are great at it. <laughs> we want to go and access everything because everything is up for consumption and learning that some things are not, or at least not for us is something we have to like really sit with and be like, okay, fine. Like I'm going to respect this. And this is going to be a tiny first step. It just might be the resistance to go into spaces that aren't mine and to be okay with the spaces that are for me. So all of these different um, different dynamics and if people are indigenous and trying to reconnect, well, being part of that community and learning from their elders and um, there are groups sometimes um, or instead of going through family, because family can be tricky, so checking that out. Um, I know there's quite a few Afro-indigenous folks who are also sharing a lot of resources on what those relationships look like. So knowing where you are, knowing who you are, and knowing your relationship, and then following through by actually putting into action what's being asked of you. I'm all excited to find out more about who I am. I'm Native American. I'm a part of a tribe in Washington, and I've never been. It's because I don't have a relationship with my father, and that is the connection. Yeah. So it's something that I've been waiting on um, to sort of learn more about an entire family and group of people that I don't connect with, but it is very much a part of who I am. So yeah. this is really interesting to me, um, for sure. I'm loving this. And I think that that's probably something a lot of people can relate to, right? So for you, Daniela, what was like, what got you into this line of work? So it's kind of been something that I didn't realize I was interested in. <laughs> and now looking back, I'm like, of course, everything led to this. <laughs> So I grew up um, in a low-income neighborhood, which was great because I got exposed to all these cultures and I didn't have this idea of classes and races. We're all a great bunch. So that was really good for me. But then I was able to see, I got a scholarship to a school in the States that was predominantly white and I experienced a lot of racism there. And then 
seeing how the people that had come into my neighborhood to help out were coming from a superior kind of perspective rather than a solidarity perspective. I didn't have those words at the time. I just knew it was like, you're just giving me stuff and then you peace out. You don't hang out here the rest you know, of the time. Like, you don't know what's really going on. You're giving me what you think I need, which is great. Christmas presents are always great when my parents didn't have enough money to give me any, but perhaps food would have been really helpful. You know, would it perhaps been more helpful if you'd been aware of how big of a struggle that is, but because these aren't struggles that you have because of your privilege, which is great for you. Um, that's the whole idea of, not participating in your own um, self-empowerment or whatever. I don't have the word for that right now, but there was that. And I studied um, intercultural studies in university. Um, a lot of my um, peers went overseas to work in Africa or to work in India or other countries. And I'm like, heck no, I'm going back to my neighborhood because <laughs> we're screwed right here. Like, you know, what's up? Um, so I ended up having great opportunities and worked um, I did some work in the Caribbean, but also in the States and neighborhoods that were more like mine. My idea was intercultural to me meant how do I navigate the dominant culture while holding on to my own, which later I found was called third culture kid or third culture adult, where you have to kind of create a third culture in order to navigate both your traditional values and the values that help you get ahead in the society. Um, and I got into mental health. I'd always been in mental health, kind of. My mom was a foster mom and so we've had kids in our home since I was about 12 um, and so navigating you know different people have different needs and different abilities and how can I ensure their because they were little kids they were younger than me so that was always my mentality was as a caregiver how can I ensure their safety security and development given what they are capable of so it's not like where are we supposed to be right now it's what can you do right now to get to your optimal self right now? And what is your potential optimal self? Because some folks perhaps don't have, um, uh, they're neurodivergent, so their way of thinking is a little bit different, but how can I sustain them at their best selves when that looks different than perhaps when I'm being sold on TV, which is, you know, a CEO is making millions of dollars is their best self or some yoga person in like Bali is being their best self. This person has a different, idea or a different capacity for what that bell self will be. How do we um, work with that? And I got to working on reserves um, for about seven years on and off part-time because I would be there for 72 hours and then leave. So I was like a part-time foster mom kind of, but I worked predominantly with um, teens. So learning about how culture and mental health kind of pile on to each other and how navigating this dominant culture just became really real to me at that time was this is a whole like it's just colonialism like that is the root of all this mental health that we're going through right now it's coping mechanisms for the society that was built against us and so that kind of led me into how do I build community in a way that's different from the way that society has given me because perhaps it's joining teams at least when I moved back to Vancouver because I had been living away for a while um, a lot of community building activities were behind closed doors. So you had to know when and where that was happening and it had a price attached to it, which again, doesn't help the greater community. And my interest was how does our community improve their mental health through um, preventative arts and culture. So arts and culture was kind of my, my target there. And then I just got into education because I'm like, you know what? Arts and culture is not valued as much as education. I need to get paid. And I've always been teaching this <laughs> stuff to the kids that I work with because that was another thing that got to me personally was I can teach the kids all about their culture 
and I have no idea what mine is. Like I Google it and it says extinct. And I know they're not extinct because my grandma was from that community. And but I know she denied it. She died about two years ago. And that's really when it hit me is this knowledge is lost because she refused to pass it on because there is such anti-Indigenous sentiment in Central America. You do not want to be identified. Well, some folks like her did not want to be identified with that identity. So that's kind of the journey. And so again, I say play and chasing rabbit holes because it's what's most comfortable. It's an extremely exhausting and isolating process. So do it on the path of least resistance for yourself while still acknowledging your privilege, whose land you're on, your relationships, and, and trying to keep them as right as possible. We're going to mess up because we're going to mess up. How do I correct it when I mess up? Well, we all have privileges that we have to be aware of, right? There's a thing, if you Google it, it's called the axis of privilege, I think, and it kind of looks like a spider. And it has all the privileges you might hold on the top end, and then all of the experiences of oppression you might have on the bottom end. And they're fluid, you know, like in some spaces, I am the darkest person in the room. And in other spaces, I'm the lightest person in the room. And depending on how the other person is viewing me through their white supremacist lens, how they interact with me might be different. And I might be unaware of how they're interacting with me until they say something that really makes me aware of what this person thinks of me. And I have the exact same lens because like I said, we are all fluent in colonialism. We are fluent in white supremacy. This is the stuff we've grown up with. You know, I'm 35. I've been learning this since I was one, you know? <laughs> so um, acknowledging that, that I am a perpetuator of what I've learned. That's why unlearning is so hard. And understanding, again, I have privilege. So that's why I think when I found out that I had European ancestry, it was so important to me because um, it's not only healing my marginalized identities, it's healing my colonizer identity as well. Like what would it have taken to um, perpetuate so much harm against another group of people? You know, and looking at, I love Resmo Medicum's work because he talks about like epigenetics and how you can inherit traumas, um, not only from intergenerationally, like from what my mom might do, my grandma might do to me, but also from what my ancestors way back had been exposed to and how that affected their genes and how that's manifesting and how I engage with the world today. So looking at all of that and then my privilege today in this space, which might again change as soon as I break my leg going out the door. You know, I have a different set of um, experiences. So understanding they change depending on my physical body, how my identities might change, how other people's perceptions of me might change. And just being really keen on that. And that's where unlearning is really important because it kind of puts this new lens on you that you can see what's going on and how to interact with it in a way to ensure that the people who need most protection in that space or whose voices need to be um, brought into the space or upheld in that space, um, how I engage with that as well. Because being aware of our privilege is where we hold power and where we hold influence. And it's where I can create change. And if I'm a change maker, then I must always be aware of that. Um, being aware of my oppression keeps me safe. So just being aware of how how that looks in different spaces. So I was actually introduced to uh, Priscilla um, through your page. And okay. she is a Latina like me, but I have always used the term white passing because it's just something that I grew up with. Like, it's just how I identified myself. But with following her, I've learned how that's problematic. Right. And a lot of people um, who follow me, like, look to me for, you know, anti-racism uh, and social work and like what to do and how to deal with things. But it's just like, I just want to 
remind everyone that it's so important that like we are all always growing and learning. Um, and that's something that recently I've been really like growing through and learning. Um, but I did want to talk about racial bypassing because it's something that I see happening a lot where people kind of want to like remove themselves um, or um, avoid being held responsible and kind of want to keep pointing the fingers at everyone else. So I, hope, I was hoping that was something you could talk a little bit more about since you do have the a little bit more education and knowledge on that. Um, yeah, I think racial, again, because race is a construct somebody made up on skin color. I can pass yeah. a certain way in the summer and a different way in the winter. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. I just want to make, you know, clear yeah. that this is a ridiculous thing that yeah. we are buying into 100%. Mm -hmm. um, so with racial bypassing, it's, I try to label my ancestry and again, the traumas and traditions that they have had collectively with my skin color. Like there's no, there's no connection there. Um, so again, it's for my personal comfort and by me trying to be most comfortable, depending on what's trending or what allows me the most opportunities like um for latinx people especially back in the day and in north america too but i see it a whole lot more in latinx like even just media today you have everybody aspiring for whiteness the closer you are to whiteness the more opportunities are available to you the more you see yourself reflected in the media like even shakira and jlo who are my favorites i'm like they got dark like almost black hair that's curly and both of them are tan yet nobody knows that unless you actually google them why and this has probably contributed to their success you know it's very real um that was their decision whatever but um just acknowledging that that doesn't erase my responsibilities again by acknowledging my relationships and leading with relationship rather than skin color it's who who's around me how have my ancestors contributed to this society what privilege do I hold here to start changing it rather than being like, hey, I'm comfortable being um, a BIPOC in this situation and my comfort right now is more important than your safety or decolonizing the space in order for you to be elevated because some folks, um, especially folks that are like darker melanated, they can't change that situation, you know? So how can I use who I am right now and acknowledging that? To, uphold, to hold safer spaces rather than saying, nah, I'm comfortable here now. And you know what, when I go somewhere else, I'm dying my hair blonde. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about me. It's me before everybody else, rather than I'm in community with everybody else. And if they're not well, I'm not well. So yeah, that's kind of my take on racial <laughs> <Rachel> bypassing. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I love that you're just empowering people to be more confident and comfortable in this space. Um, so for someone who's kind of new to social work and they want to be more involved, um, where would be a good place for them to start? Yeah. Again, I go back to, um, identity. So if you, if you like reading or movies or, um, podcasts, whatever, look at stuff where you see yourself reflected and go down that rabbit hole. Cause it took me forever to find people that truly, um, shared my experiences again, because our voices haven't been out there as much, you know, I can find a gazillion different white experiences, but how many Latinx mixed ancestry immigrant stories do I have to take from, 
you know? So go down that rabbit hole and see where it resonates and communicate with those people because we're all just humans on the other side of the screen and we know how lonely it is to be on this journey. So we're more than happy for the most part to connect with everybody else and share what our journey has been so that we that person can pass it on to their community because they probably know a whole lot of other folks that are in the same, um, same thing. So identity through education and then being very aware that this is um, exhausting, emotionally exhausting work. You know, like when I found out, again, I keep on going to this half European thing because it was a huge shock for me. <laughs> I went from having this um, kind of like you said, the racial bypassing, even though I didn't know it, you know, it was like, I'm brown, I'm Latina, you know, I know I have indigenous ancestry, I know I have black ancestry, and I know there's white somewhere because someone's last name is Johansson, but <laughs> I don't know who they are, you know, whatever. And when I got this number, even though all these 23 and me things are problematic, those numbers shift all the time, blah, 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 whatever. I was like, nah, now I have to like, not only struggle with having been a brown person, but now being responsible for all this white supremacist BS that I also carry. So that was a bit of a grieving process. I didn't like sit around and dwell with it too much, but it was still a process where it's like, okay, well, where am I now? I feel so untethered from the community I thought I was a part of. Um, and like, even now when I'm doing work, I take a lot of brain breaks and I need my people to remind me that it's because I'm exhausted because a lot of this is the stuff that I'm educating you on. I can say now very easily because I've processed it, but, and I'm always super open to people coming at me with new information when I have something to learn. But that is exhausting. Being called out is exhausting. That's why we don't like it. That's why we want to be comfortable. So knowing what your limits are and being okay with preserving your mental and emotional well-being and able to continue with that work, you know, and that might be working at a crappy job for the man because I need to make rent, like, you know, or going this far in a conversation because that's all I can emotionally handle right now and being open about that. This is all I can handle. I'd love to continue this, but I can only take it in pieces. So the self-identity and then the emotional integration of it, because we can attend a DEI training, check it off our box, done. But to bring it into all aspects of our lives and confronting our friends about making racist comments and perhaps losing friends, that is a whole other experience. So again, being very easy on yourself is a practice. It's ongoing. You're going to mess up. And there's other people here that have been there and want to support you if you reach out. And if not, get like a therapist or build your support team to help you along this journey. Absolutely. And you yeah. have a few, uh, a free community that, that um, is for Black, Indigenous, and women of color that uh, you can go and join on Daniela's website. Um, any other great resources um, or information that you have for us today? Um, I would recommend again Priscilla, who you mentioned, Priscilla Garcia Jacquier. I think, um, but perhaps post her in there because her last name's a little bit. Yes, crazy. all this information will be in the description of this episode. <laughs> um, she is great for dealing with um, with whiteness, which can be really tricky. And who am I if I'm not white in the American context? And again, this is all to do with context. So perhaps a white Latinx person might show up as a POC when hired by a corporation in the States because they're like, well, they're not our kind of white, you know? Yep. <laughs> so reckoning with that, if you've always been used to being um, not that kind of white, but you still hold all that white privilege. And uh, 
Cat Lasso from the Cat Call that Me Too did. Um, it was a series they did a while back. She said something that really got me, which is the second you walk in the room, what do people looking at you from a white supremacist lens see you as before you've opened your mouth, before you've done or said anything? So for me, perhaps for some, having a shaved head will give them identity, um, an idea of what my gender my identity might be on top of my skin color, you know, but some people have hair, longer hair and whatever, and you have to ask them what their identities are because it might not be um, so obvious when you walk into the space. So being aware of that, you know, it's okay to talk to people about how they want to be addressed. Um, being aware that the second you walk into a room, you either have hold privilege or you've been, you know, brought down according to how people see you in that space. Um, so Priscilla, also the social justice doula is amazing, um, doing a lot of work on anti-racism and what that looks like in practice. Um, I'm trying to think, Alok V. Menon, Menon, shucks, Alok is their first name. Um, and they just finished a book called Outside of the Gender Binary, Beyond the Binary. So good, always sharing books and summaries on what this idea of gender and how it was created and who it serves and the history that exists prior to these new definitions being put on it um, is amazing. They do a ton of work and they open you up to a whole bunch of other folks that are doing similar work. Resma Menicum, again, for trauma-informed practice around um, race identity. And I'm trying to think of Oh, this person that works with class, because again, looking at race, gender, and class, and I don't remember the the left, black left AF, I think is their name. And so just really tying it back to, for example, Angela Davis and her way of thinking of, you know, um, approaching things from more of a communist socialist standpoint, or Malcolm X and how we started talking at the very, very end of his life about this being a class struggle. Again, when we reflect on um, the Bacon Rebellion, we see it was race was based on a class struggle, you know, here in the States. So what does that look like? And again, building solidarity and realizing we're in this together rather than keep on separating ourselves. Just because we have a ton of identities that we are now able to live with in this society um, doesn't mean that we're divided. It just means we get to show up as our true selves. So how can that contribute to our change rather than detract from us working together? I love it. Beautifully said. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, we will um, put all of Daniela's information in the description of this episode. Make sure you check out her website. So many amazing free resources. Um, definitely check out that book, podcast, and movie list. Um, it's a great way to start learning. So thank you again, Daniela. Thank you so much for coming on. This is really great. Thank really you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a review. We greatly appreciate that. And we'll see you bitches next Monday. Bye.